Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Serena Graywall, Associate Professor of American Studies, Religious Studies, and Ethnicity, Race, and Migration at Yale University, about her exciting book, Islam is a Foreign Country, American Muslims and the Global Crisis of Authority published by New York University Press in 2013. Grewell's monograph, Islam is a Foreign Country, seamlessly interweaves ethnographic research with an in-depth historical perspective in order to yield an unparalleled account of American Muslims and their intellectual and spiritual journeys. Where does knowledge come from? Where does Islam come from? Can Americans find it in California, or must they travel to Egypt or Syria? How does skin color, religious conversion, and national origin play into these queries? In order to answer these questions and many more, Graywall guides the reader through a complex history of Islam in the United States, including key institutions, important figures, and critical events, while also recounting her ethnographic research from Cairo, Damascus, and Amman. Graywall follows the stories of American youth as they travel overseas in search of something they believed could not be found domestically. Yet at the same time, these students seek to return to the United States after acquiring what they set out to find. How their idiosyncratic American identities and concerns play out in their respective locales offers a frame in which Graywall explores her larger questions surrounding authority, identity, and religious truth. The monograph is an example of scholarly rigor, while simultaneously welcomes non-specialists to explore the challenges she puts so eloquently into words. Islam is a foreign country, is thoroughly digestible, and although with big ideas often come big words, Graywall's prose proves inviting and absorbing, making it an absolute pleasure to read and a conversation starter for any number of audiences. I hope you enjoy the interview. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Serena Graywell. So good morning, Serena. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Before we get started with talking about the book, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your educational background, some influential scholars, and how you got interested in writing your book? Absolutely, yes. Um, so I started off, I grew up in, in um, the greater Detroit uh, area in Michigan. And, um, you know, I came from really a kind of working middle class family um, in a place where, you know, some people went to college and some people didn't. And I, you know, came very close to not going to college at all myself. Uh, but in the end, um, I did actually go to a small commuter college, uh, University of Michigan Dearborn. And I happened to be in a sort of um, uh, humanities program that was like an honors program. And so in the course of, you know, I was a, the kind of undergraduate that changed my major every semester. And uh, I happened to take an anthropology course. I thought I was going to be a math major, but then I took an anthropology course and there was an anthropologist there who really urged me to transfer and to go to the University of Michigan and to pursue, um, you know, uh, graduate school maybe in the future and to think about, you know, academia as a possible future for myself, I wasn't really convinced or that interested, but I did actually transfer to the University of Michigan. And that was really a critical um, decision for me because when I got to the University of Michigan, you know, which is a, is an enormous 
university with a lot of students, uh, I happened to come across two mentors that would be my mentors, not only as an undergraduate, but also as a graduate student. And uh, like me, they were both first-generation college students. Um, the first was an anthropologist by the name of Ruth Behar, uh, who was a, a Cuban-American anthropologist and who really, at the time, um, had, had just sort of uh, made a name uh, she, she was she was a well established she was an established anthropologist and very very well respected in the field. But she just sort of made a real um, kind of splash at the time with kind of leading the charge uh, in terms of self reflexive anthropology, in terms of thinking about narrative ethnography, how to write ethnography uh, in a kind of humanistic way and a way that also accounted for. Um, you know, one's own positionality. And so that really influenced me and she really urged me to go into graduate school. And then the other professor that I, um, you know, developed a close relationship with as an undergraduate was Sherman Jackson in Islamic studies. Um, and you know, he, he also really, I mean, he's actually the person who really insisted that I absolutely had to uh, go to graduate school. And he really wanted me to go into American studies and not Islamic studies for a number of reasons. Um, you know, uh, one of those was, that Islamic studies, um, in his view, and I agree with him, is still very closely tied to area studies and Middle East studies, and uh, you know that kind of Cold War history still very much shapes what Islamic studies looks like. And you know, he himself was running into um, some uh, challenges as he was doing research on Islam in the U S um, after having done so much work, historical work in the Arab world. And so that's why he really wanted me to consider American studies. And so, um, I actually, you know, left my undergraduate and I became a first grade teacher for a while, but because I maintained a relationship with my mentors, they, they continued to urge me to consider coming back to graduate school. So I eventually applied to graduate school and I did stay at the University of Michigan with those two, um, advisors. They were the co-advisors of my dissertation. So from the very beginning, um, I had this very interdisciplinary, um, sort of mentorship. And the program that I decided to settle on, although I started off in American studies at Michigan, I then transferred, there was some uh, changes happening within the program at American studies at Michigan at that time. And I actually ended up transferring into another interdisciplinary program at the University of Michigan called um, Anthrop- the Interdisciplinary Program of Anthropology and History. And that was really a very exciting intellectual community. Um, and I had a number of, you know, I was the only person that was working on anything related to the anthropology of Islam. Um, but the kinds of questions, um, it was really a, a, my introduction to post-colonial studies in a really rigorous way and other, um, other, other, uh, bodies of literature that were, were new to me. It was a very exciting place to be. And then I, you know, because I was in anthropology and history, I also brought on um, my committee, Andrew Shryak, who's an anthropologist of the Middle East, and Barbara Metcalf, who's a South Asian historian um, that focuses on Islam, and but had, who had also done some work in, in the U.S. As Andrew Shryak had also worked on Arab communities in the U.S. So I had a really wonderful um, set of instructors, uh, you know, advisors on my dissertation committee. And so the 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 
the project from the very beginning, um, you know, had this very interdisciplinary quality and that has sort of sustained me. It's sort of been such kind of a core part of my intellectual identity from the very beginning and to this day. So when I left Michigan or when I defended, I taught briefly as an adjunct at Vassar. Um, but I shortly after, actually right after I defended, I was actually um, brought to Yale as a, um, postdoc in what's essentially their ethnic studies program. It's called the Program in ethnic, uh, Ethnicity, Race, and Migration. And that was a very kind of natural transition to me for, for me because, as I said, I started off in American studies. Um, I'd always had an interest in American studies. And then um, the Department of American Studies and Religious Studies at Yale hired me after a year of being a postdoc here. That's where I've been ever since. So um, I still see myself very much in conversation with Islamic studies, religious studies generally, American studies, of course, and anthropology, and um, uh, and also American history. Yeah, and I think obviously the interdisciplinarity really comes through reading the book, and you can see how there's all these different lenses through which you're examining your material, and that, and a combination of other things I just want to say, it makes the book so readable and just fascinating on multiple levels and it's written in a lucid manner and I'm really excited to assign it to undergrads and think that it would be very accessible. That's, and that's so I, here. That's very, <laughs> thank you very yeah, much. And I, I'll, well, yeah. I'll be interested in hearing your thoughts about how undergrads might uh, receive the book towards the end of our conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the very first thing that you see when you encounter the book is the title page, Islam is a Foreign Country. And I think that title is just bound to get all sorts of thoughts going on in people's heads. So can you tell us, what's the story behind that title? Was it was it something you had thought about from the get-go or did it evolve? What does that title even mean? <laughs> yeah, okay. It, it is an ironic title and it is, a, I guess, provocative title. So I concede that. And it has gotten... Um, a lot of it's elicited a lot of different kinds of reactions. So first, I should just say that for a long time, I, I was go- going to call the book "Unmapping the Muslim World," and um, and you know the, probably with the same subtitle, "American Muslims and the Global Crisis of Authority." Um, and uh, you know, ultimately, my press they convinced me, which I think they were right, that unmapping was not a word that translated and it sounded very academic. And, uh, you know, I think they were, they were right about that. What I was trying to get at is that, you know, where, or the other kind of alternate was where in the world is the Muslim world? Um, you know, the idea that the, the, the book of course is trying to deconstruct that idea of there being a, uh, a Muslim world that's, that's a real place where you can go to um, a place where presumably Islam really belongs. Um, and so Islam is a foreign country uh, is of course a play on L.P. Hartley's um, famous opening line of the novel, the, you know, the, the past is a foreign country. That's a very, um, uh, you know, famous line in one of his novels. And, and so it's, it's playing on that idea. Um, but it, it, it's a, and of course it's an ironic title because Muslims themselves believe that Islam is a universal tradition that's for all peoples and all places in the same way that Christians see Christianity, right? Um, or people see democracy as a kind of universal tradition that, that's not located to a territory or rooted to a territory, right? Um, but what I was kind of interested in and what part of the story of the book is, is the way in which that moral geography, as I, as I call it, um, uh, of the Muslim world as a place and an idea um, 
is also something that Muslims in the U.S. themselves have also internalized. And it's that tension between the desire for uh, a universal um, uh, expression of Islam or the, the the desire to kind of capture the universality of Islam, and, and then um, and then this also this very real reality of Islam being constructed continuously as foreign. In fact, I don't think there's a religious tradition that is considered more foreign to Americanness today than Islam is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the book talks about Muslim world with a capital M and a capital W and Muslim world lowercase. Um, and the first is of course, trying to talk about that idea of, you know, the kind of dominant, um, imaginary in the U S the dominant kind of American imagination about this place, this distant culturally foreign, um, place. That's like the opposite of America, which is, you know, the Muslim world. Um, and, you know, presumably contiguous and all of that. Um, and then there's this other idea in the book about the, the aspirational Muslim world lowercase that American Muslims themselves have, which is not of this place where Islam exists or lives or belongs, but rather the idea of global, you know, a global ummah or a global Muslim community of Muslim majorities and Muslim minorities who belong wherever they live. And that's part of what American Muslims have been, you know, um, struggling towards um, over their history in this country is, um, you know, to be able to make Islam belong here and grappling with that question, how do you make Islam belong to a place? Um, You know, we don't, I mean, the idea of what is the Muslim world, you know, it's, it's, um, and we take, for example, Obama's uh, address in 2009 in Cairo, which was dubbed the uh, Muslim World Address, right? So it's interesting because in that, in that, in the way that was talked about, and there's all kinds of questions about where the where the speech would be, and you know, he sort of in that moment kind of constructs Cairo as the capital of the Muslim world. So the Muslim world is both some place that he went to, but it's also it's also an audience of you know a billion plus people that I guess he's addressing, uh, and so that's a really interesting concept to me, right? And I, I guess I wanted to explore the idea of, you know, what if we could think what would that mean? Uh, and I don't mean that in the sense of, you know, uh, I don't know, Sharia creep or something that like, what if Muslims took over America? I just mean that in, in the sense of, you know, can Islam be an American religion? Can we think of Islam as belonging to the U.S. in the same way that we think of Islam as belonging to Afghanistan or belonging to China? Although actually Americans don't think of it as that, that way. They forget that China also has a large Muslim minority, that India has a large Muslim minority. So the Muslim world can't be just places where there's Muslim majorities because then you're ruling out, you know, a country like India that actually has a larger Muslim population than Pakistan, for example. Um, but so, so in other words, it's to show the really constructed and inconsistent um, kind of definition of what counts as the Muslim world at any given moment for Americans. And that's changed over time. Right. And so thinking about Americans in particular, which is, uh, he sort of focused on it in the book in a particular way, although, of course, you're exploring different parts of the world as well. So what what is the global crisis of authority that you're talking about, and how, how does it relate in particular to Muslim Americans? Right. So there's, so there's a couple different crises that appear in the book. Um, 
And so, first of all, you know, the book starts by sort of talking about how the notion that Islam is in crisis is almost a taken for granted fact. If you look at the media, if you look at just, you know, the national discourse within the U.S. and actually in other places in Europe and other places, I mean, and also within and also in, in, in places like the Middle East. I mean, the idea that Islam, um, that there's a problem, that Islam is in need of reform, I mean, or, or is it in need of reform, right? This is, this is um, a dominant feature of public debates about Islam, about Muslims, and also uh, debates among Muslims. So that's what, that was sort of my point of departure. Now, um, I myself am not diagnosing Islam as in crisis. I'm interested in when the claim of crisis uh, appears, or when is in, when is crisis invoked, under what conditions, and why, and by who. And and um, and so there's lots of different crises of Islam. In fact, there's not one single solitary crisis of Islam. So usually, when when you know, in the U.S., when people are talking about the crisis of Islam, what they're really talking about is terrorism um, or, um, you know, the condition of Muslim women or something like that. Uh, you know, these 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 uh, elements uh, or these issues that are sort of taken as evidence of Islam's failure to, um, you know, a, a sort of reconcile itself to modern secular inquiry or, you know, as if Islam has somehow survived into the modern world or the contemporary moment without, without the kind of, uh, you know, reformations or debates or uh, transformations that religious traditions like, you know, Christianity and Judaism have, have gone through, which is of course not the case at all. Um, but that's, that's the way it's talked about that somehow Islam got away with it. Somehow Islam just slipped into modernity without having to accommodate modernity. Um, so that, that's the sort of dominant, um, discourse around the crisis of Islam. I, that's not the dominant focus of the book. That is sort of the background noise of the book is that what I want to look at is Muslims own debates about whether Islam is in crisis, whether Islam is in need of reform, and if it is in need of reform, what kind of reform, particularly educational reform. Uh, and so that's what I'm really in interested in, is those debates about the crisis of of Islam, and specifically the crisis of authority. So the debates for Muslims are not... Um, the same as they are in the dominant discourse in the U.S. So for American Muslims and also Muslims abroad, you know, the primary debate is about authority, who speaks for Islam, what's the criteria by which we determine who an authority is, um, what do we consider Islamic knowledge, what's the criteria by which we understand the transmission of Islamic knowledge. Um, all of those kinds of questions are really um, at, we're at the core of these debates about about authority. And, and the reason I, the subtitle of the book is American Muslims and the global crisis of authority. You know, what I'm really arguing is that, you know, on the one hand, I do focus on the American, uh, you know, context as um, of American Muslims, like the U S mosque context, more or less, uh, of how these debates are playing out. But these debates are not American debates. They're debates, they're, they're, they're debates that are happening in, in Egypt, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, and in Iran, in Indonesia, in South Africa, you know, all, all over the world. And so that's why an American Muslim can get up 
go overseas, encounter somebody in another country, and they're they're having the same conversation essentially, even though. The context may be different, but the big questions are shared around the world, and that's really what I what, what I what I wanted to capture. Right, and so given this large scope, and you're talking about global Islam and global authority or global interpretations of Islam or what have you, what what is it that makes the sort of American perspective or perspectives unique or distinctive? That's a good question. So the, the argument that I make in the book is this, is that um, the debates around religious authority for American Muslims and the kind of religious imagination of American Muslims is so closely linked to a story about American, about race in America um, that you can't really talk about one without talking about the other. Um, that's one of the the core debates, uh, the core arguments of the book is that, um, you know, this is one of the things that makes uh, that, 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 that this is the local flavor of, of debates about Islamic authority in the U.S. that doesn't always translate globally. Um, <clears throat> so while those big questions are shared, it's the local. Uh, history it's the local racial context uh that 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 does that does make some of these debates some or some elements of the debates difficult to translate um into different places and so what i'm looking at really is the ways in which debates about who is an islamic authority and how we can define religious authority uh, how American Muslims can define that, how that, how that has changed over time in relation to different, uh, racial kind of moments in American history. And one of the ways that plays out, you know, um, is that in the sort of post 65, period, right? And 65 is always the magic number for American Muslim history in the 20th century. We can talk about that, what, why that is. But, um, you know, basically what happens is there's just a, such a, de- the, demo, the, demo, the demographics of American mosques uh, result in an incredibly uh, heterogeneous population. Um, in other words, mos- mosque congregations are, as many scholars have argued, perhaps the most diverse religious congregations in in the u.s uh you know if 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 sunday is the most segregated uh i don't know sunday morning is the most segregated time in american cults you know in in america some people say well friday afternoon certainly is not in other words when mosques are you know you go into a u.s mosque and you will typically see very very diverse congregations. Now, just because people are praying next to each other does not mean that they always understand each other. And so that's really what um, I'm trying to get at is that, you know, what American Muslims are grappling with is uh, just an incredible diversity. And sometimes that diversity is posed as a source of great pride and a kind of proof of the, um, 
universality of Islam, of the fact that Islam can be a radical critique, critique of American racism. But at other times, that diversity is posed as a kind of problem um, because of all of the kinds of tensions and contradictions and conflicts that you have within, within those very diverse um, communities. And so... Um, that that that's the part of it that is very American, that's very local, uh, and that's very much on the minds of American Muslims as they're considering these questions wherever they are. Great. And so before we, we leave America and start talking about some of the case studies that take place in the Middle East, Arab countries, you've mentioned mosques, um, but you also talk a lot about American Muslim institutions like Muslim Student Association, Islamic Society of North America, the Nation of Islam, et cetera, et cetera, and even Al-Nakhrib Institute, which, of course, is undergoing somewhat of a scandal right now. Mm-hmm. And so could you say something about what types of institutions have defined Islam in the United States and maybe what that trajectory looks like, if you care to speculate? No, no, I absolutely do. I mean, so... so of course, as I've already said, the, the book is trying to trying to be an ethnography of global Islam or transnational um, transnational Islam within the U.S. But I'm also very much um, trying to intervene in a debate that we have among scholars of Islam uh, who work within the United States. What the one of the one of the features of that scholarship. I mean, this is both whether you're talking about historical work, ethnographic work, sociological work, um, etc is um, a tendency to what I call the village effect. In other words, many, many scholars end up going into a mosque or a city and they will, you know, talk about that mosque. Like this is Islam in Chicago and I studied four mosques in Chicago. I myself have done a, a study like that um, on on uh, marriage, interracial marriage patterns. But these, these studies and this model um, – I think even in my own work, what it fails to capture is the actual fluidity uh, of American Muslim communities as they exist. In other words, what I became frustrated with as I started looking at the scholarship is a way in which, you know, you can read a book about American Muslims in LA or in Chicago or in Detroit or Dearborn or New York. And, um, It'll be whether it's a story about African American Muslims, Arabs, South Asians, Turks, whoever it is, Iran, you know, Iranian immigrants. It's as if those those ethnic communities or racial communities, geographic communities, are completely isolated from mosques that are either other local mosques or from the national kind of discourse among American Muslims. And that's what I think is one of the core problems in, in the literature um, on American Islam. And that's what I wanted to counter. And so I wanted to get around this idea of the quote unquote mosque community. Um, So I, when I talk about mosques, I'm not really talking about mosques. I'm talking about what I call counter publics. Uh, and of course, this is drawing on, you know, Michael Warner and other people, um, who have thought through this idea of, you know, ha- of, of publics that are not connected to a place or an institution, um, but are rather in conversation with each other. So by making debates rather than places or rather than demographics a kind of entry point for the study, um, I'm able to capture a much more fluid, heterogeneous and diverse set of American Muslims who are who are who have a relationship to each other without collapsing their differences and treating them like the same. 
So that that's really the aim of the project. And so I do that both within the national context in the U.S. and then also talk about Muslims overseas, American Muslims overseas and other uh, transnational networks that they're part of. Right. So on that note, you talk a lot about traveling and how that's been important for Muslims historically and how American Muslims, perhaps in a particular way, think about traveling as a way to find the true Islam, but not stay there and bring Islam back. And you you have a quote from page 63 that I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about. You say, although travel is often assumed to broaden one's horizons, the act of travel can also narrow one's horizons. So could you say something about that in relationship to traveling abroad as a means of defining American Islam? Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, you know, so one kind of early reaction to the book was, um, oh, okay, so you're, this is a book in part about um, American Muslims who are participating in a religious um, ritual, which is in Arabic referred to as the rahla, right, or the idea of traveling for religious knowledge, which is something that Muslims have been doing, you know, from the beginning of the foundation of Islam. Um, and so someone said, okay, so, you know, you talk about American Muslims who go to Damascus. Well, you know, people used to come to Damascus from Timbuktu and from, uh, you know, uh, Karachi or other places, and, and, uh, and now they come from San Diego, is that the point of the book? The answer is no, that's not the point of the book. I mean, if that was the point of the book, I wouldn't have a very long book. Um, what I'm trying to argue is that, yes, of course, these American Muslims are participating in something that, you know, Muslims all over the world have participated in from the beginning, from the beginning, which is studying Islam and traveling to study their religion. Um, and they're, you know, religious seekers in the kind of a larger sense of that word that that actually goes across many different religious traditions. That phenomenon. What I'm what I'm trying to capture is, um, I mean, the argument that I'm making is essentially that the religious imagination of American Muslims is profoundly geographic, and that uh, places outside of the U.S. and that they're not always the same places, but Islamic places outside of the U.S. have always been a very important part of the ways in which American Muslims negotiate these core questions around authority and around belonging, um, and the kind of this question about the universality of Islam and the possibility and impossibility of Islam being an American religion. And so when I say, you know, the quote that you read, um, what I want to try to, what I'm trying to get at there is that, you know, when we, when we look at American Muslim seekers or student travelers, as I call them, going abroad um, for Islamic study, of course, we have to understand them in the context of Muslim religious seekers, but we also have to understand them in the context of, of, you know, a long history and genealogy of Western travel to exotic places. And uh, sometimes that you know, those, those travels result in, you know, relationships, um, political alliances, religious alliances, um, but they can also, 
you know, result in disaffection and disgust and parochialness. I mean, it's not, you know, I, I'm trying to argue against a kind of cosmopolitan ideal that simply travel in and of itself makes the world smaller and better. It doesn't necessarily. And we, we all know that. Um, that's not to, re- that's not to debunk what they're doing as not, not like legitimate or something like that. It's simply to say that, you know, the, 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 the process of traveling for religious study um, doesn't have a predictable effect on what someone will, how somebody will experience that other place or how they will imagine or reimagine home. That that's always in flux and it's produced by a number of different things. Um, you know, so I mean, for example, just to kind of give a more concrete example, you know, for a lot of let's say like white American student travelers that I encountered, you know, they're, they're imagining going to these places, all these Muslim places and meeting all these Muslims and being in a kind of religious communion with other Muslims. And they get to Jordan or they get to wherever and they discover everybody sees me as a white guy, as an American. And I'm constantly being asked about what I think about the war on terror. Um, and so they, they, you know, they're, in other words, they're not being received in the way that they expected to be received. Uh, and, and that, you know, can be a source of tension or they can get there and, you know, one person in the book talks about, you know, I didn't realize I had converted to a third world religion is what he calls it. Right, you know, I remember that part. It made me yeah, it was very stood out. Yeah, so you know, he he sort of had studied books and and had this kind of um, you know certain vision of what he thought he was converting to, and you know he didn't really have much knowledge about um, the Muslim country Jordan that he was about to travel to, and then he later goes to Syria. I uh, didn't have much of an understanding of those places, and so when he gets there, you know, he was sort of surprised. This isn't what. I, you know, I've been reading about theology and other kinds of things about Islam, but I hadn't really read anything about Jordanian politics or Syrian politics. And this is all a big surprise that you've got this, you know, these places are post-colonial places that are, you know, quote unquote, third world places that that's what he sort of, um, (laughs) you know, is surprised to experience. And so in some ways, by going overseas, he actually starts feeling more American and more out of place as opposed to feeling like this deep, uh, you know, communion or sense of coming home to Jordan. I mean, that's part of what, you know, although I think he, that was a sort of expectation that he had. He said, oh, well, now that I'm Muslim and I'm frustrated living in America as a Muslim, as a religious minority, being a minority for the first time as a white man, when I go to Jordan, I'll suddenly feel more comfortable because I'll be, um, I'll be part of the majority, except not really. Now, that's not to say that he doesn't also later develop deeper relationships and attachments to these places and to people that he encounters. He does. But it's that complexity that I'm trying to capture, which is that, you know, um, it's not, we can't look at this travel as simply a Muslim phenomenon. It's also an American phenomenon. It's also a racial phenomenon. It's also a gendered, you know, activity. There's, there's many levels at which we have to understand what, what, what actually makes these encounters possible and um, what makes them legible from the point of view of the people that are engaging in these encounters. Right. And of course, one of the ways you complicate these narratives is by uh, relating the narratives of various individuals from different ethnic backgrounds, men and women, and sort of giving the complexity that way. And so you, you look at, people traveling to Cairo, Damascus, and Amen. And could you say something about how 
those cities, how you selected those cities and also how you encountered the individuals that you ended up writing about? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. So first of all, um, you know, I, I uh, initially, when, when I initially proposed the study and I did my initial um, fieldwork, which was, by the way, before 2001, 9-11, 2001, um, I had uh, imagined that the study would include Lahore, Pakistan, and also um, possibly um, yeah, Iraq or, you know, Morocco. So I, I had... I had um, what I encountered really was hitting up, I mean, as much as there's an encouragement to do transnational research and multi-site ethnography, when it comes to funding, it's actually quite difficult to fund such projects. And so, you know, taking out, I, so I had really wanted there to be a non-Arab site. Um, and, and Lahore was one possibility. I was also considering Malaysia, which is another really important site. And I talk about it in the book. Um, ultimately it was the area studies, model that I've talked about before, that kind of, you know, Cold War paradigm um, that made the funding agencies were very resistant to just to, to, they really wanted me to stick to Arab cities. And so that was sort of the compromise. Um, But, you know, this is not an Arab phenomenon of traveling to Arab cities. And, And many of the people that I encountered uh, had been to other places. In fact, one of the people that's, you know, that's the focus of the book is someone who had spent a good amount of time studying in Pakistan before he came to Jordan. And at the end of the book, I talk about um, how important Malaysia has become as a site for, um, so for example, pro- uh, progressive and feminist Muslims as a kind of intellectual destination for them. So it, it, it really is a global phenomenon. And I encounter many people who, for example, been in, been in, been to Iran and then came to Lebanon uh, to be the project I was actually also interviewing Shiite Muslims, um, stu- Muslim student travelers, excuse me. Um, but because of the nature of the difference between the debates about Islamic authority in the ethnographic part of the book, I do I do restrict the focus to Sunni to Sunni students. Although you know the historical parts do talk about other um, Muslim sects as well. But um, so that's really why I ended up settling on. I, I, why I ultimately, you know, compromised and did, did restrict this, the study to Arab sites. And then the, the question of why Cairo, um, Damascus and Amman, uh, that was just because of the networks, you know, um, as I started looking at where American Muslims were going, um, those were, those were three of the, sites that came, you know, were at the top of my list. I also could have done, for example, Yemen or Medina and Saudi Arabia, or like I said, Morocco, and there's many other ones that I could have chosen. And it's, so I'm not making the argument that these three cities are the most important cities or the, certainly not the case. These are just the ones that I happen to go to. In fact, I would argue um, that, you know, the kinds of things that I found, the kinds of debates that I found happening among American Muslims and locals in Amman, in Cairo, in Damascus, are the same debates that are happening among American Muslims and locals in Malaysia, in India, in Pakistan, in Iran, in, 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 in Morocco, in South Africa, um, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia and many other places. And so it really, you know, um, it really is, is not about, the story is not about these cities as, as um, exemplars of this phenomenon, but they're just simply case studies, uh, and I could have I could have chosen other ones, and I I hope other people will do studies of those other sites. I mean, as I said, you know, I did preliminary research in 
Pakistan and in Lebanon and in um, the Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Um, but had, but I had um, but 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 you know I I had not I have not done extensive research in those places. So maybe I'm wrong. And I hope you know I hope to see what other people do. And there are people that are interested in, in following in doing comparable studies in other sites. So I'm really excited by that. And so, did you meet the people that you wrote about before you had gone to the various countries, or were these people that you met on the ground when you were there through various networks, or both? They were all. I didn't. I didn't know any of them before getting there. Um, I don't think. I mean, if I did know, maybe just like one or two or something like that. Well, I really. Um, met all of them when I was there. I, of course, knew socially many people who had done this, you know, um, uh, but they weren't people that I interviewed. I mean, I didn't, there's a kind of, you know, I don't claim to be a, there's sort of two schools of anthropologists, cultural anthropologists, people who think of themselves as very strict social scientists, people who think of themselves as more closer affiliated to the humanities. And I'm definitely someone who thinks of myself more as a humanities scholar than a social scientist, but I do, I do care a little bit at least about selection bias. And so I tried not to interview my own friends. Um, and I wanted to actually meet other kinds of people and, um, for a number of met when I was in these days and, you know, it's interesting. I mean, some people I interviewed, I have 50, 60, 70 hours of of audio tapes of them being interviewed. And then other, other people I only encountered five or six times and just have maybe just like maybe a dozen hours or, or even less. And, 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 um, the funny thing is, is that when you're in the field, you don't realize who the, I, because I decided at a certain point that I was not going to talk about giant groups of people in the abstract part of the problem, I think is that we're so used to talking about Muslims and Oftentimes, books about uh, even ethnographies—you don't get to know the actual people. And so, I, I did decide uh, pretty early on in the writing process that I would actually, you know, pick out individual stories that would try to speak to the larger phenomenon, not represent giant groups, um, but actually precisely to indicate like there is no way to talk about all of these different peoples and all these different experiences in a simplistic way. So although I did a massive amount of interviews and I think in the end, I interviewed more than 200 um, uh, scholars and uh, students. Um, uh, the people, the people that the stories in the book end up focusing on essentially um, eight student travelers and then, and then a smaller set of Muslim intellectuals. And so, you know, some of the people that I ended up writing about are not the people that I necessarily spent the most time with, but it was more that I just felt that their, their stories or the ways they, they talked about their experiences translated best to the page. I mean, there was, I always uh, think back on this one woman that I met in Syria who was so funny and charismatic and likable. And I spent so much time interviewing her and I thought for sure that she would be a huge part of the book. And in fact, she's not even in the book because when I came back and started looking at the actual transcripts, it, her, the way she was in real life didn't translate uh, somehow into the, into the way she spoke uh, on a trans, like if you looked at a transcript, just didn't. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't represent her in a way that I felt. I felt good about, and so uh, I ultimately didn't use any of that material. <laughs> Whereas Omar, one of the one of the um, the African American young Salafi man in the book that I talk about, uh, you know, who is actually a relatively large focus on him in the book, um, is someone who I didn't interview very often. 
um, he, basically the way I met him is that we had, we shared a, we shared a teacher and the teacher introduced us. Um, Ahmed was also part of the story of the book, but his, his interviews, his stories translated to me in a way on the page in a way that, that others didn't. So like when he described, for example, you know, the, the books at the side of his bed, Malcolm X's autobiography, Arabic dictionary and the Quran, right. That he kept on the side of his bed. I mean, to me that, that image just captured so much of what I was trying to get at, um, that I, you know, had to, had to, had to, had to put him in the book. So if we can pick up with Malcolm X, this relates to something else I wanted to ask you about. And we, you, you can see this through the different, uh, individuals you select, uh, as part of your, ethnographic details. They come from very different backgrounds. There's white converts and black non-converts and people that come from Arab backgrounds. And one of the striking things in the book, of course, is that you talk a lot about race and how that affects people's perceptions of Islam and perceptions of authority. So could you say something about different American authority figures and how their ethnic or racial identities has affected their abilities to have authority. And so three contrast, contrasting figures that come to mind that you talk about are Hamza Youssef, Malcolm X, and Ismail al-Faruqi. But feel free to talk about any other ones that stand out as well. Yeah. So so part of what the, I mean, the book is, ha- is a, it's a historical ethnography. So half the book is a, is, a, is a kind of religious and intellectual history of Islam in the United States in the 20th century. And then the second half of the book is, is an ethnography, but they're also overlapping and feeding into each other. Um, and so, you know, in that intellectual history, what I'm trying to do is um, pick out figures that uh, I think represent really important and influential intellectual trends and really shape in, in, in Islam in the U.S. and who really profoundly shape the religious imagination of American Muslims. And uh, so, you know, people might be surprised. I mean, a lot of people, for example, you know, I, I think in my dissertation, I don't think I kept it in the book, but I was for a while referring to this whole phenomenon in the 90s of and, and beyond of so many American Muslims going overseas to study Islam and, and um participate in, in the Rahla as, as, as quote unquote, the Hamza Yusuf effect. Hamza Yusuf is a white American um, scholar based in the Bay Area in California and, uh, um, who, you know, went overseas and, and spent many years overseas studying Islam and came back and really became an incredibly influential um, preacher. I think everyone will know Malcolm X. Ismail Faruqi is another um, revi- Arab, uh, Palestinian, Arab American revivalist who really was one of the leaders of a number of important American Muslim institutions, such as the Muslim Students Association and college campuses, but also an umbrella institution called the Islamic Society of North America. And um, and so you know these are three uh, men who have uh, really powerful. Um, uh, ways of articulating, you know, their vision for the future of Islam in the U.S. and in the world, and of of articulating the relationship between American Muslims and Muslims abroad, the lowercase Muslim world that I was talking about earlier, and um, and their projects are not all the same. I mean, there are really interesting and I think important. Uh, similarities between someone like Hamza Yusuf and Malcolm X. Um, but when people talk about the history of Malcolm X, they rarely 
think of him as a religious seeker, but of course he was a religious seeker. And in fact, that's much of the way he's memorialized in American mosque communities in these, uh, you know, and so that, that's what I wanted to capture is to think about Malcolm X, not only as, um, you know, uh, an activist, um, but as a, or even as a religious leader, but as a as a religious intellectual, as a religious seeker, as a kind of uh, pious model, which he was, and so was Faruqi, and so so is Hamza Yusuf, um, and so that's that's part of what the project does. But I also, you know. Um, wanted to, I mean, there's other people that come up in the book. So someone, another white convert who's a sort of Sufi uh, leader um, around the world and he's based in Jordan is Sheikh New Keller. I think there's a lot of really interesting parallels between someone like Sheikh New Keller and Elijah Muhammad. And I think those are things, those are the kinds of uh, parallels, convergences, overlapping imaginaries that don't normally get captured because of the ways in which historians of Islam in the United States have separated and have bought into these strict lines between Sunni Islam or the post-65 Muslim experience in the U.S. and the pre-65 or the Nation of Islam is sort of totally separate. And so by by foregrounding the question of the religious imagination um, and religious debates about inclusion in America or not, or the relationship to the Muslim world, I'm able to get at, I'm able to kind of get beyond those, those simple divisions and to show us that there are these echoes uh, that you hear. And if you listen close enough, um, that you wouldn't expect to hear. Uh, same thing with Faruqi. I mean, Faruqi, you know, people, people so often think of him strictly in terms of his particular project, uh, which was a, um, a modernist revivalist project, something that he called the Islamization of knowledge. And it, 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 um, didn't have, by the 90s, you know, someone like Hamza Yusuf's project became much more pervasive and powerful kind of way of imagining Islamic education and the relationship to the Muslim world than what Faruqi had posited earlier. In fact, in many ways, Hamza Yusuf's um, uh, vision is a kind of corrective and response to Faruqi, as I, as I see it. Um, but uh, Faruqi's, you know, vision of a kind of what race-blind Muslim community, uh, kind of melting pot ideal, um, is incredibly important and incredibly influential. Um, and it, and it elicits critiques, um, but it also, uh, persists in all kinds of important ways. And so this is what I meant when I said earlier that the debates about religious, religious authority, which Malcolm X and Hamza Yusuf and Ismail Faruqi are at the center of those debates, uh, of defining the terms of those debates, but they're all of what they're, arguing is also intimately tied to this geographic uh, religious imagination that is also always about race. Right. And so in addition to race, something you look at particularly as well, this is reflected in the individuals that you look at is looking at gender. So could you say something about how that relates to race and how it informs the types of uh, narratives that you looked at? Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, one of, one of the, um, the graphic chapters is devoted, for example, to the 
um, the, the, the special challenges of, of American Muslim women student travelers who want to claim a kind of religious authority by, you know, getting this knowledge, which in theory, um, they, you know, that's, that's the idea is that religious authority is a function of religious expertise, uh, or religious, you know, of accumulating a certain body of religious knowledge. That's how one becomes an authority. It's not restricted by gender in theory uh, to become a religious scholar, an alim or alima. However, the reality, of course, is that that's, that there all are all kinds of um, gender biases and uh, ways in which Muslim women are restricted. Now, typically people th- imagine this in terms of like the Taliban and Malala, you know, like women aren't allowed to get an education. That's not what I found at all. I think that that, you know, that kind of um, extreme example of preventing Muslim women from getting uh, access to education uh, or the Boko Haram in, in Nigeria, the, 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 these are very extreme, radical and fringe movements. Uh, for most of the Muslim women that I encountered, both Americans and also locals in these places that I that I was looking at, getting a uh, an education is not is not difficult at all. It's just the highest levels of authority where they encounter um, real challenges to getting getting you know to asserting their authority. Um, what one of them calls a glass ceiling. That's and, and frankly, I find it to be comparable to a place like, you know, the the academy in the U.S., where women continue to encounter, you know, glass ceilings at the highest levels of, let's say, becoming deans or becoming presidents of universities or other kinds of things or tenure, et cetera. Um, but it's not hard, for example, to get – I mean, now we have, like, I think more women in many – graduate PhD programs than even men in the humanities, for example. Um, and so the same, the same thing is true, like at a place like Al-Azhar, there's actually many, many women studying at Al-Azhar University in Egypt. Um, in, in Syria, one of the groups that I look at is the, the Qawaisiyat um, faith movement, which is a woman's uh, pedagogical movement about, uh, you know, it, it, it is, it's, you know, which is, which at the time was thriving and um, vibrant intellectual community of, of women, um, teachers and students, uh, and it's also a global one. So, I mean, I found I also found the Qubaysiyat in Jordan. I interviewed them there as well, um, and of course in the U.S. and elsewhere. So, certainly Muslim women have access to higher education, uh, higher Islamic studies education. Uh, but it's these. It's the, when, when you start talking about the ability to assert their authority um, at the highest levels, that's where they are encountering, encountering problems. And so the case study that I look at at the very end of the book um, around um, uh, a figure, um, uh, African-American Muslim woman um, who was a scholar and a feminist uh, named Amna Wadud. And um, there was a whole debate around, um, she, she, in 2005, she led um, a mixed prayer gathering where she was the imam of a Friday service, and it was very controversial. Um, and it's controversial from a ritual perspective for many Muslims. Um, but part of what the part of what the controversy was around was in the racial interpretation of gender segregation in, in congregational prayer in Islam. So, you know, what um, someone like Amina Wadud and others who sympathize with her or agree with her see is that by having women in the back of a mosque, it's comparable to the back of a bus, of a Jim Crow bus, right? And and um, for the much of the American public, 
they would also read it with that filter. Um, for 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 other Muslims, including other Muslim feminists, they they see that that. Uh, racial analogy as an imposition and an inaccurate imposition because, you know, their argument would be, well, you know, um, there's no altars in a mosque. Being in the front is not better than being in the back. You know, the, the being close, closest to God is when your forehead hits the ground in prostration. So, you know, gender segregation is not like a bus or is not, you know, this is a, this is a kind of false equivalence that's being made and being forced upon us. Like we're the gender segregation and, and, and ritual prayer is being understood, you know, in terms of the story of racial, racial segregation in the U S is problematic. Uh, and so, so, so it's really interesting to look at the ways in which, you know, these kinds of convergences between the racial discourse, the racial debates, Muslims are having, and also these debates about gender. Um, I mean, they often overlap and intersect in really fascinating, fascinating ways, and and in ways that most Americans would miss because it's simply not covered in the media. Although that event received an enormous amount of media attention, there was no real explanation that I found in any of the media coverage of this really clear difference in interpretation of what segregation means in prayer among American Muslim feminists. It was simply set up as though Amina Wadud uh, was a pioneer and um, and that the people who opposed her were like fundamentalists or radicals or sexists. Um, you know, they, they, they're, they're, the, the whole other side of American Muslim feminists who saw it or who were, you know, had a different perspective, they were just left out of the conversation. Yeah. So on the topic of misunderstandings or maybe misrepresentations, you mentioned earlier that people have misunderstood you maybe intentionally or unintentionally as saying that, you know, Muslims shouldn't travel abroad or something like that. Are there any other main arguments that you feel like people have misunderstood in your book? And I'd say also, it's such a it's such a big project and obviously, you know, you limit it to, I think just under 400 pages, but I imagine, you know, you could have, you have a lot more to say. So, (laughs) you know, misunderstanding it, uh, again, it could be intentional or unintentional. So I won't say anything more about that. So are there any other things that you think people aren't understanding that you'd like to clarify about the main arguments? Yeah, I, I think one. So, so there, there are two things. First of all, the the book is not an argument against Muslims travel Muslims in the U.S. traveling, you know, outside of the U.S. to pursue Islamic studies. Oh, or you know, I, t- I talk about the limitations of what is possible from that. Um, but that's not to say that I don't think it's it's not valuable. In fact. Part of what the book is, is arguing is that in the context of the war on terror, there's an enormous amount of pressure to break the relationships, intellectual relationships, charitable relationships, um, you know, religious relationships, uh, even familial relationships between Muslims in the U.S. and Muslims outside of the U.S. And that, you know, I see that as a huge problem. So I'm, I'm absolutely not arguing or critiquing the the phenomenon of Muslims uh, the U- American Muslims studying outside of the U.S. Um, and I don't see that phenomenon even going away anytime soon. Um, although there are now more institutions within the U.S. where Muslims can get a higher education, a higher Islamic studies education if they want one from a from a confessional point of view. Um, uh, what I'm trying to argue really is that I'm trying to the the, the, the ethnographic 
dimension of it is really trying to look at what what's the misalignment of expectations of people who go overseas to study and the communities that send them and what they expect to bring back when they come back because they all do expect to come back at least the people that I was looking at um, um, so that's really what I'm the argument really is about the fragility of authority um, the, the different the nature of different bodies of Islamic knowledge and um, the dangers of disappointment you know what is disappointment what is a misalignment of expectations due to a religious community that's really what I'm trying to get out there uh, in terms of another you know one other issue that I you know, the book has only been out for a few months, so, so it's interesting to see the reception of the book. And, and a lot of it, the reception has been from lay audiences. But one of the things that has come up over and over again is that because I'm talking about um, public intellectuals and I'm talking about what they said in 2002 or 2003 or 2007 or 2005, you know, that might not be where that same intellectual is today. And so how do you do do you know, how do you keep up with the present moment, which is always moving? You know, my, my argument is, um, not about like, you know, what the, my representation of this intellectual is a static one. Rather, I'm trying to capture what their, you know, if I pick out a statement or I pick out a, pick out a particular position of an intellectual at a particular moment, I'm trying to capture that the impact of that public statement or that dis, uh, that that person's vision on the public discourse of American Muslims in that in that moment. It may evolve later. It may it will, it's continuing to evolve. Uh, you know, one of the biggest surprises for me at the end of the book is to see how 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 profound the transformation has been. Um, for example, a figure like Hamza Yusuf. Or um, uh, you know other 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 intellectuals in the book, even uh, uh, Tamara Gray, another uh, intellectual in the book about you know these these people. As I wrote about them in the book, their positions today might be very different, and that's that's a natural part of any intellectual's life is that their you know thought evolves over time. That's fine. I'm not trying to claim. I never claim in the book that this is sort of the end of. Uh, the the story. Um, I mean, in fact, the whole the whole introduction is about how this is supposed to, you know, how I see anthropology, how I see ethnography, is, and this is an analogy I take from my my mentor Ruth Behar, is the way that um, Jewish scholars continuous commentaries on on Jewish law. Muslim scholars have the same thing in Islamic law, right? So this, there, you know, we're always adding another layer. And so it's an open-ended story, uh, but and, and I'm also not saying anything about the intentions of these people, or you know. And I, I personally, I I was incredibly impressed by the sincerity and passion of all of the intellectuals that I that I encountered. Uh, whether I disagreed with them or agreed with them is irrelevant to me from my point of view. It's really um, I, I don't I, I I presume I start from the I start from the presumption that these people. Have dedicated their lives to you know their religious vision and to their sort of political projects um, out of sincerity, uh, but that doesn't mean that I don't have. I mean, so in other words, the way I come at it is, I want to look at or my critique is of the impact of what their vision, what their message, um, has had. Um, I'm, I'm cer- certainly not, you know, um, 
I don't know, a kind of, I'm not trying to discern who the good and bad Muslim religious leaders are, which is one, I think, unfortunate reading of the book. Although certainly there are plenty of people in the book that I disagree with. And I make those disagreements explicit precisely so that readers of the book can appreciate that I'm also personally invested in in all of these debates and that I couldn't pretend not to be. Um, these are the, these are the debates that I, not just an object of academic study from, these are the debates that I grew up with from just, just growing up as a Muslim kid in, in, in Detroit and they're debates that have been with me all my life. So I didn't, I didn't discover them through anthropology. Um, anthropology just became a kind of mirror for me and a kind of tool for trying to think through questions that are intimately familiar to me and have been my whole life. Well, great. And if we can come back to the, because you mentioned lay audiences, so if we can come back to this idea of using this book with undergraduates, I know it's only been out for a few months, but have you had an opportunity to use it in your classes or introduce your students to it and get their feedback? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, one of the nice things um, for me, and this is why I include them in the acknowledgments, is I've I've been workshopping this book with undergraduates for, for many years, but it's been really wonderful to hear from colleagues the book in class, um, either this semester or last semester, in you know, Islam 101 classes, um, but also in you know more seminars and religious studies, in American studies, uh, and in of course in anthropology of Islam courses, and so that's been really great. Um, and, and for me, as I said, because interdisciplinary work is such a core part of my own kind of intellectual identity, it's really been rewarding um, to see that the book can enter many different kinds of conversations in many different spaces in the academy, whether it's Islamic studies or religious studies generally or American studies, anthropology, even history, American history. So that's been wonderful. We've taken up a bit of your time. and Thank you so much for hanging out for this long. So if we could wrap things up, could you say what what are you working on next? What are your future plans? Will they depart or stay connected to this this book? Or what's what's going on in the future? So, you know, this book really is about trying to show how the dominant discourse about the crisis of Islam um, touches or fails to touch Americans, American Muslims own debates about the crisis of Islam. And so it foregrounds American Muslims debate and leaves the dominant discourse of, you know, whether it's Fox News or CNN or NPR or whatever that is, or the, in the academy or in the policy world, um, about the, you know, whether or not Islam needs to be reformed, it, it leaves that in the background. Um, and it only at the very end of the book, does it kind of bring it back to that through really looking at an analysis of media. American uh, media. The next book is going to reverse that. I think I'm going to focus primarily on dominant discourses about um, tolerance, specifically looking at a kind of social life of the Quran in the U.S. Um, so it'll be historical, but also ethnographic. And and so I will also, of course, have a dimension that looks at American Muslims grappling with various policies um, uh, around you know, the ways in which the state has kind of intervened in, in various ways uh, in the way, uh, trying to um, essentially police the ways in which Muslims read or use the Quran. Um, 
but it's also, you know, a story about Islamophobia and Islamophilia. What are the different discourses in the U.S. about the Quran? What kind of book is it? You know, I think that's been a question that Americans have um, circled back to at many different points. So I want to give both a historical perspective on that, on that uh, question of what the Quran means, what it says, what kind of book is it, um, and also, you know, kind of capture, capture the, the, the contemporary moment um, and the post-war and terror, you know, all of this. And also to have it have a global dimension looking at, for example, um, U.S.-sponsored counterterrorism or rehabilitation programs where people are being taught to read the Quran the quote-unquote correct way. So that's really what I'm interested in is is the Quran as a kind of cultural, an an American cultural object. So that's going to be a different project I've done this book, but to me they're related. It's just sort of um, the inverse in a way of what I did with this book. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Thanks. Thanks so much for sharing your time. Let me emphasize once again uh, how much I appreciate the opportunity to read the book and chat with you. And I look forward to being able to assign it to undergraduates. And thank you so much for your time, Zarina. Thanks. This was great. I really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Zarina Graywall, Associate Professor of American Studies, Religious Studies, and Ethnicity, Race, and Migration at Yale University about her wonderful book, Islam as a Foreign Country, American Muslims and the Global Crisis of Authority, published by New York University Press in 2013. Thanks so much for listening.